Chapter Five of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Five, Oh, yet we trust that somehow good will be the final goal of ill. Tennyson. After the fight in the bazaar, the ducal party stayed for another fortnight in Cairo, during which time Damaris saw as much of the place and its surroundings as she could in fourteen days, and a few hours out of each of the fourteen nights whilst her godmother played bridge or poker, paid and received visits, took her to dances and parties, and busied her fingers in the tangled threads fate had tossed into her lap. It was an understood thing that the girl should be ready to conduct the old aristocrat to the dining-room at the dining-hour, and give her the evening. Other than that, her time was her own, though owing to her innate courtesy and her love for her godmother, she never once absented herself without having obtained permission." "'You are a positive tonic, child, in these perplexing days,' remarked her grace, when the girl had concluded the recital of the flight in the bazaar. "'Only do remember to come straight to me, if ever you get into a real scrape.' And that night the old lady, who had lost heavily at poker, fairly snapped at Maria Hobson, who, tucking her up in bed, remarked greatly daring, upon the amount of liberty allowed the child. "'Don't be foolish, my good woman,' she said, "'and do, for goodness' sake, mind your own business of looking after me. Although my goddaughter may bluff a bit for the fun of the game, and get down a bit for her own good, yet I shouldn't advise any one to get seeing her too often. Fate dealt her a royal straight flush in hearts, and better that you can't, no, not even you, hold a full house of intrigue and bad intent to other end of life's table.' Humph! replied the maid, heavily through her nose, not having understood one word of her mistress's admonition. Each day at breakfast and at dinner, a bunch, big or little, of simple or hot-house flowers lay beside the girl's plate, without name or message. Now, the finding of flowers upon your table does not, in Egypt, necessarily imply that the donor thereof is a son of the desert. The maitre d'hôtel has been known to do it out of deference to your rank or purse, and only once had Jane Coop had the mixed pleasure of meeting the deaf-mute Nubian who daily left the posies at the hotel. Refreshed from her siesta, she had descended to the hall via the stairs instead of the lift, and bumped into the ebony-hued slave as he bent to lay a sheaf of flowers upon the matting outside her mistress's door. He had straightened himself and salaamed almost to the ground, which had delighted Jane Coop, and had offered the bunch to her. "'Oh, no, my man,' she had said, brindling. "'You don't come over to me that way. "'Just you take that trash back to where it came from. "'My young lady ain't that kind,' "'and had shaken her fist in his face "'and flounced downstairs to lay a complaint. "'What with the militant maids, the parrot and the dog, "'the ducal party was continually breaking out "'in some direction or another. "'But the maitre d'hôtel, who simply worshipped the old lady, "'merely smiled and poured the oil of soothing words "'upon the troubled waters.' The girl had quite casually recounted the fight in the bazaar, and the wise old woman had made no comment. But, all the same, next day she indifferently asked a few questions of Lady Thistleton, who had a big heart, narrow mind, an ever-wagging tongue, and two daughters. "'Oh, that's the son of the Arab and the English girl. You must remember the fuss there was in England over the runaway marriage. What was her name? How she could, you know— "'Ah, yes, you must be talking of Jill Carden. I knew her very well.' "'Naughty girl, she refused the invitation I sent them, asking them to come to England and stay with me, and gave up writing to me after a while. Does she live in Cairo?' It seemed that Jill, the wife of the Sheikh el Umbar, lived in the flat oasis t'other side of the canal, in Arabia proper, 
but according to current gossip was at the moment upon a visit to her son at the house el mahaba which had been built for the elder branch of the house el umbar on a verdant patch watered by the springs from the limestone hills which stretch on the desert side of the oasis of kerga he's not in cairo then no he left to-day replied the gossip you see his mother is expected at any time at his home if she isn't already there my maid will chatter so there's absolutely no stopping her funnily enough i arrived at the station as he was leaving in a special train such a handsome man educated in england millionaire too of course it's a case of a touch of the tar-brush such a pity too the duchess suddenly shivered little jill she said gently little jill i must go and see her if she will let me ah general what about a hand at ecarte before dinner and she rose with a stormy rustling of her softly scented silks leaving the gossip wondering in what way she had put her foot in it that night as she lay like a little brown mouse under the mosquito net watching the stars through the open window the old lady suddenly decided to bestir herself it's too risky she's too beautiful too young and unsophisticated she murmured as she lit a cigarette under the curtains which is strictly against the rules i'd bet my last piastre that jill carden's son's all right but all the same one has to reckon with the glamour of the east love's all very well in a cool climate but it's the dickens out here must get her anchored in safe waters what do you think decco old friend what course shall i set shall we go home or to heliopolis the bird scrambled awkwardly on to the dressing-table well old man how about it steer a course straight for hell old dear came the muffled reply as the bird twisted its head under its wing then untucked it to murmur sleepily to hell so she made up her mind to move on the very day after the girl's birthday which fell in a fortnight's time she would indeed have left at once if it had not been that she had issued invitations on a gigantic scale for a fancy dress ball in honour of the anniversary inwardly damaris rebelled at the suggestion of moving on to heliopolis outwardly she acquiesced without enthusiasm but if it will do that nasty little cough good dearest why wait for the ball do you want to go maris the desert will be so near evaded the girl half an hour's ride at the most so so ben kellum told me and there you see the desert miles upon miles of it stretching right away like the sea the hawk eyes flashed across the girl's face taking in the forced indifference of the expression and the light which gleamed far down in the eyes i had a letter from ben this morning his lung has been troubling him that is why he hasn't been over did you has it is it rather lamely replied the girl he had written to maris a perfunctory note of welcome to the land of the pharaohs then a week later had come over to dine he had ached to take his beautiful little chum up in his arms and shake her for her haughtiness and by sheer strength of arms and will force her to say yes to the question which it took him all his strength not to ask since childhood he had been her slave her doormat and the butt of her various moods feeling infinitely well regarded by a careless smile or word so that he found it difficult in fact well-nigh impossible to act up to her grace's plans and suddenly transpose himself into the strong silent man the girl spoilt and accustomed to slavish devotion and used to his worship felt incensed then hurt and finally perplexed and to hide it all retired therewith into a shell of icy reserve he had adored her openly and now seemingly looked upon her as just one of the crowd of women in the hotel she had taken his adoration for granted and as a right 
to awaken one morning to find the gems she had tossed in amongst the rubbish of her little experiences gone. Is there a greater mistake in the world than that of looking upon love as an ordinary possession instead of as a rare jewel? They were both very young, so that they suffered the agonies of doubt and uncertainty, whilst the worldly-wise old dame smiled up her sleeve. From the hour of the early cup of tea until breakfast-time on the morning of the ball, which was also the girl's birthday morning, tarbouched, impudent young monkeys of messenger-boys, bearing gifts and flowers, arrived in a stream at the hotel. Flowers and pots and vases and bunches lay everywhere in the suite. Shawls of many colours, silken veils, slippers, albums of views of Egypt, rare antiques, made mostly in Birmingham, one mummied cat, genuine, scarabs, suspicious, and one live gazelle littered the place. Ben Kellum had brought her a finger-napkin ring of dull gold. Through it he had forced some flowers and sent it along. She held it tight in her hand for a moment, then deliberately and ostentatiously laid it amongst the clutter on the table, whilst her grace peeped from behind the newspaper which she was reading in bed. Arrived at the table in the breakfast-room, the girl suddenly flushed pink and then went quite white. Right in the centre, flanked on one side by the glass dish of glowing fruit and the other by a cut glass jar of Kyler's marmalade, stood a cage tied at the top with silver ribbon and containing two cooing doves. The doves were just ordinary ones, but their prison was no ordinary cage. Fair-sized and square, it was made of fine white bars of ivory. The underside was also ivory, square and unblemished, and would have made an ideal hairpin tray. It stood upon ebony feet inlaid with infinitesimal precious stones. "'It has but just arrived, Miss Heathencourt,' said the maitre d'hôtel, who had been fluttering round upon tiptoe of a most unusual curiosity. "'There is no name, no message.' "'Please send it to my room,' she replied indifferently, whilst for some unaccountable reason her heart throbbed as she responded to the birthday greetings which came from every corner of the room. End of chapter 5